0: This is Leewood Online, a ministry of Leewood Baptist Church, located in the Kansas City area. For more information about us, visit us online at www.leewoodbaptist.com. James is going to talk a lot to us about works. He's going to talk a lot about the role that our actions have in our Christian walk, and that may seem like it, it kind of rubs against what maybe Paul or other places in Scripture would talk about. as grace receiving salvation through the free gift that God offers us because we couldn't do it on our own. Uh, we're going to see that both Paul and James and anywhere in scripture lay out the foundation that salvation comes to us through grace offered as the free gift of God. We attain that salvation simply by faith, by believing. But true faith, true belief always, always, always leads to action. So go ahead and turn with me into James uh, we're going to start with a couple of verses before what we read. We're going to start in verses 12 and 13 because I think it lays out a foundation. It lays out a principle that James believes in and I think is very important for us to see first. So in James 2, ver- uh, verses 12 and 13, we're going to see that mercy and grace in the eyes of James and all of Scripture are better than earned judgment. So uh, verse 12 says, Speak and act as those who are under uh, or are to be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. If you were here last week, you may remember Pastor Adam talking about the first half of this chapter. And James is writing to a church who's uh, who's struggling with the sin of partiality. What their, their problem is, is they want to treat people in their congregation better based on if they can do something to help them out personally. They want to treat rich believers better than the poor. And James rebukes them pretty heavily for this. He says that they're failing to love their neighbors themselves. They're failing to keep up with, with the law commands. Uh, they're failing to live under their new identity as Christians, to live under the examples God has shown us. And in this context, James tells the believers, you are to treat these other people with mercy, primarily because they've been shown mercy. So when James says that mercy triumphs over judgment, he's telling them that their mercy should be shown unto other believers. But the principle, that I think that we should look at Is that James truly has a place, truly believes that mercy, the free gift from God that we don't deserve, is better than the judgment that we've earned for ourselves. Do we see that? Because if we don't see that principle, and, and again, in this context, he's talking to believers and how they treat other believers, but that principle is set because of how God has treated us, how he's shown his mercy towards us. So as we go through this passage, it may be easy for us to think, well, James just says that that if we want to be saved, if we want to be Christians, it's all about what we do. And that's not what James is saying. James is saying that what we do is an essential part of our Christian life. But he's also saying here at the forefront, what prefaces the passage that we're going to go into, he's saying that mercy and grace given from God are greater than the judgment that we've earned for ourselves. That salvation is started with mercy. Mercy is the principle that all of this is founded on. So let's keep going and let's dig into this passage that we've read here before. The second thing that I want us to see here is that James says that faith without works is an actual living faith. So verse 14 says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such a faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed. But you don't give it to them. You don't give them what the body needs. What good is it? In the same way, if it, uh, if it in the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. And I think most of us have grown up in, in church and have heard uh, continuously that we're saved, not by anything that we do, we're saved by the grace of God that on our own we deserve God's judgment. On our own that we've sinned, we've broken the law. James in the past before. Is the illustration that if you say you've kept the Ten Commandments, but you break one of them, you're still a lawbreaker. In the same way, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God in some way, and so we deserve His judgment. Right? And because because of this, because of, of our sinfulness, we aren't in the place to be able to earn our salvation. This is the process of salvation that we've probably been taught throughout church, and it's a good one. That's the that's the truth of how we gain our salvation is simply by having faith that Jesus paid the judgment. That we deserve. So when we read this, I think maybe most of our first reaction is to jump back and, and kind of say, well, well, it sounds like James is saying that faith doesn't play the role that we once thought it did. Maybe it sounds like, like James is saying that, that that faith plays a secondary role to what we do. And I want to be very careful to see what James says. James doesn't say that faith itself is dead. It says faith that doesn't show works is dead. James is going to show us that, that any faith that doesn't have any actions that come out of it, it's not that it's faith that's not enough. It's not that it's faith that is, is, like, secondary. It's that it's fake faith. It's counterfeit faith. It's not real, true faith. James gives the illustration of, of another uh, poor believer in the congregation. He says, imagine that you're somebody in this congregation who's, you know, well off financially. You're able to help others. And you like to say, yeah, I, man, I love the people in my church. I, I love the, the church family that God has given me. I love all of these believers. And, and I, I want God to do care of them. I want God to provide for them. I want God to look after them. And then you have a believer in your church who doesn't have food to eat that day. doesn't have clothes to keep up for at night. And you walk up to him and say, man, I hope God takes care of you. I really do love you, and I want you to be well-fed. And then you walk away. Is that person really going to believe that you mean anything that you said? Of course not, because you have the means to do it. You could have helped them out. So if you didn't, you chose not to. If you chose not to, that means that everything you said wasn't real. The, the, the things that you said were fake. Paul wants us to see throughout this passage that, that yes, faith in Jesus Christ is simply believing. There's no action that we have to do to show faith. But showing faith always leads into action because it changes the way that we look at the world. If we truly say that we trust Christ... If we truly say that we believe that He's picked us out and saved us from a life of sin, if we say that we believe that He's changed our entire lives, that we now know that one day that we can stand before the throne of God and be declared right, to be declared holy, and that we are on mission for Him for the rest of our life. If that doesn't change the way we look at sin in our own lives, if it doesn't change the way that we look at being on mission for what God has told us to do or doing His commandments, do we really need anything that we just said? We said we truly have faith in Jesus. We truly believe it. You see, in the Bible, when the word is faith is used, there's the connotation of more than just something that's in our brain. It's not just a thought. And sometimes it's kind of hard because, because we don't always think of it like that. But This isn't the only place in the Bible where words like this are used. Like, think about the word remember. In the Bible, the word remember is used in a lot of different ways. And uh, there's times where I think that can be confusing. Like if we're reading Psalms, and, and the psalmist says, you know, oh God, remember your promises to me. I think most of us kind of jump back and think, why does God need to remember? God doesn't forget anything, right? God's not a forgetful God. He's perfect in knowledge and and memory. There's nothing that God's forgetful. Why is the psalmist telling him that? And I had a a professor in an Old Testament class that I took. He explained it this way. He says, when they use the word remember, they're not just talking about simply a state of mind. Remember has the connotation of them doing something. Like, for instance, like when you were a kid and and your mom said, you know, Stephen, did did you remember to clean your room? No, they are not really asking if if you thought about it, right? If you answered, yeah, I I mean, I remembered, I just chose not to. You're probably going to be in more trouble than if you didn't remember in the first place, right? When they ask you that question, did you remember to clean your room, they're asking, did it come into your mind and then lead into your actions? In the same way, faith has the same connotation. Believing is not just something that's in your head, it then leads from there out to the rest of, of your actions, out to the way that you approach the world around you. So faith that only gives lip service isn't actual faith, not according to what the Bible is talking about. Faith that's real faith always leads into something more. So let's keep going. Thirdly, we're going to see that James says that faith and works are totally inseparable. Verse, uh, Verse 18 says, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you faith by my works. You believe that God is one? Good. Even the demons believe And they shudder. So James seems to understand that what he's saying is probably a little bit difficult. And he can almost anticipate that somebody's going to argue with him a little bit, right? So so he starts off with this kind of stuff. So imagine if if, if somebody came and said, well, of course, James, I know that that God blessed you in a certain way. You have spiritual gifts so that you're able to do all these works. And you're able to love the poor. And you're able to go out and take care of orphans and widows, And that's great for you. God's given you the ability to do that. But what God has given me is the ability to have great faith. So aren't we okay? Just to think you have what you've got, I've got what I've got, and it all works together for the kingdom of God. And you can almost see why somebody would say that, right? There's there's certainly places in the Scripture where it talks about spiritual gifts. You know, like God gives some believers some some areas that so they can build up the kingdom. That are, you know, that we're all a little bit different, serving different ways. But James tells us that's not the case. James tells us that again, something that all believers believers have in common, the gifts that all believers have in common, are that we are saved simply by God's grace. Apart from our action, through faith, attaining it, I believe, and that it will always lead to action. All believers share those characteristics. So when James says, "Okay, you say that, that you know maybe one has faith and one has has works," he says, "No, I'll show you that I do have faith. I'll prove to you that I do have faith by the things that I do, by the works that I have." He even quotes the Shema in Deuteronomy six. You know, we we find this quote that the Lord our God is one. it's, it's the statement in Deuteronomy. That is basically the, the foundational statement of faith for the nation of Israel. This, this statement in, uh, of faith in Deuteronomy 6 is basically what sets the Jewish nation apart in their religious practice from all the pagan nations around them. And key to that is the idea that our God is one. They don't worship many gods. They're not polytheistic. They're not worshiping the God of all these different objects. They worship one God, the creator God, creator of heaven and earth. And that sets them apart. So James brings up this idea. He says, you believe this very basic statement of truth about who God is good. Because it's true. You should believe that. But even the demons believe that. And they should. James is saying it's not just enough to know in your head. To proclaim in your head that, yeah, this is true. James even goes as far to say that it's not just enough to have an emotional reaction to that truth. Because even the demons have that, right? They know it and they should. True faith is not only in our heads. Not only in our hearts. But it moves from there into our hands and our feet. It moves into our actions. James is saying it doesn't just stop with what we think about things. It's not just some, some philosophy. It's truly a changed life that changes our minds and changes our actions. Fourthly, and this is where we're going to stick around for quite a while because this is where it really gets difficult. Fourthly, we'll see that everything that James is saying is completely backed up. James goes uh, at length to point out different places in the Bible where where this is exhibited. He says here in verse 20, Since this person, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Was Abraham our father justified by works in offering Isaac his son on the altar? So this is really interesting. So James starts off this this passage by and says, I'm going to go to the Bible to back up everything that I'm saying. So let's point to Abraham. Wasn't Abraham justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? God asked him to sacrifice his son, and he didn't even spare that. He believed God, and so he did it. And what's so interesting about this is he seems to have chosen the one place in Scripture that is backed up in a bunch of other places as James being justified for a different reason. Whereas James says, wasn't he justified by works? Paul, in Galatians and in Romans 4, in Romans 4.1, Paul says this. What then will we say about Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? time? If Abraham is justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited him for righteousness. Now the one who works, pay hey, is not credited as a gift, but it's something owed. But to the one who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited for righteousness. So again, James says, don't we see that Abraham is justified by works? When he, when he sacrifices his son, he offers to sacrifice his son. But Abraham, or but uh, Paul says, don't we see that Abraham was justified by faith? Because if he earned it, then that's not a free gift, that's his paycheck, right? We see that the Bible says that this was a free gift. So don't we know that Abraham was justified by faith? And when we look at those two passages side by side, I think the natural question that kind of pops into our mind is well, who's wrong? What, what part of the Bible is incorrect on this, right? That, that's, that's almost how we kind of have to reconcile it. And the answer is neither. And, and it seems really confusing because they almost seem to be saying the exact opposite things. But I think that we see that this also works out in our lives and in the normal ways that things can be this way. Like for instance, imagine there's a mom that has two very picky children. One of them will only eat carrot stew. It's the only thing in the world that they want to eat. The other one will only eat chicken nuggets. Nothing else. So if the mom goes to the one that only eats chicken nuggets, and she says, if you want to grow up big, big and strong, you have to eat your vegetables. You've got to eat more than that. You've got to eat your vegetables to grow up big and strong. And then she turns around and says to the kid that will only eat the chicken nuggets, or only eats the carrot sticks, if you really want to build up your muscles and grow big and strong, you got to eat protein, you got to eat meat. Which one did she like to? Maybe. She's telling them the same truth. She's telling them from different perspectives because the two kids are are airing, they're messing up in two very different ways. That's why it's so important to look at context when we're looking at the Bible passages that we're going through. It's very important to look at who the authors are talking to, what they're going through, and why he's saying what he's saying. So in the same way that the mom was talking to two kids who are in very different places, messing up in the same thing, but in very opposite ways, James and Paul seem to be speaking to audiences who are erring in very different ways on the same subject. So it seems like Paul is talking to an audience that cannot believe, is having a hard time believing that they can just be gifted the free gift of heaven, of of a life with God, of forgiveness. They feel like they have to earn it. They feel like they have to work for it. They feel like they have to do something to gain God's favor. Or it seems like James is talking to an audience who, who slightly understands that a little bit better. They understand that they've been saved by the free gift of God, But that's led them to the conclusion that, hey, if I've been forgiven despite what I've done, then what I do really must not matter. So, both in their own ways, James and and, and Paul are going to be bringing back the believers to the central truth that we're saved by the grace of God, attained through faith, through simple belief, but that belief is only real if it always produces works. It's the same truth, it's the same central idea, but people are erring on very opposite sides of it and are being brought back to the middle, back to the safety of what the Bible really teaches. So when James walks through this passage, um, it's going to sound very different from what we find in other places in the Bible, but that's understandable because he's talking to a, a people who are facing a different problem in their faith. So let's look very specifically at the parts of, of what James is saying, why it may be difficult, and let's explain it. So in this first in this first section, verses uh, 20 and 21, he's a sensitive person, are you willing to learn the faith of God works? Is useless. Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works and offering Isaac his son on the altar? So, understanding how Abraham is justified by works and what James is saying, uh, let's think about it like this, right? Let's let's think about the story in a different way. Let's say that God goes to Abraham, says, Abraham, I want you to offer your son Isaac on the altar. I want you to sacrifice your son. And Abraham says, Father, God, I know that you are good. I know that you would never ask me to do something sinful because you yourself are without sin. You're perfect and holy in all your ways. I know that you know all things. So that if you're asking me this, you must know why. And I also know that every miracle in the, in the book is, is in your hands and you're able to do whatever. And if, if you to raise him from the dead, I know that you can do it, God. This is a very difficult thing for you to ask, but I trust you 100%. And then imagine if you turned around and didn't do it. Would we say that's real faith? Would we say that anything that he just proclaimed, anything that he just said, even if he thought he believed it, would we say that with real faith, if it didn't go as far to do what God asked? If he really trusted God, would he not go and do what God asked him to do? So we see that, that as, if faith and works are always working together, we see that real faith is then justified, is found true, is found right, when it's produced with its second half of its, 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 its close neighbor works. Right? So it's not that Abraham then becomes saved in that sense that when he does something like that, it's that the faith and the works that are always working together are brought into completion because it's proven to be real, true, biblical faith. So let's keep going. Uh, in verse 22 it says, you see that faith was active together with his works. the exact same thing that we've been talking about, that the two are together. They're not to be separated, but when faith is there, real works follows. So that you see that faith was active together with his works, And by his works, faith was made complete. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he he was called God's friend. So the next difficult thing I want us to approach is is how James says that Abraham's faith was completed by works, or that the scripture was fulfilled by his works. And uh, that's... That's a hard thing to gather what exactly James means just by reading a that. So if we come to a place in Scripture where we're having a hard time understanding exactly what the author means with a word like completed, the best thing to do to understand that is to see how that word's been used in other places in the Bible, especially if that word has been used by the author himself. So luckily, James has already used this word completed um, in the book. He actually used it in chapter 1. In chapter 1, He's talking to believers, if you'll remember. He's talking to them about enduring persecution, how to be how to be encouraged in those difficult times. And in chapter one four, he says, "Let endurance have its full effect, so that you will be mature and complete, lacking in nothing." So when James says that enduring difficult times, enduring trials and persecutions will complete the believer, he's meaning that that these trials, these difficult times, will, will be used by God. To bring them to maturity, to grow them in their faith, to take them further along the path so that they're eventually looking more like what God has planned for them all along. It's, it's the completion, the, the ongoing path of their sanctification. So, so we see if if that's what he means here, In the same way that trials are used by God to mature and complete us in our sanctification, works are used to mature, depict, and complete our faith. If faith and works always go together, that process of God working faith in us isn't going to be complete until God also brings about works in us. God always brings them together. Again, I don't want us to be confused with thinking that we're saying, alright, God gives us faith, but it's not real unless you go out and do something. No, no, no. The Bible says that if God makes your heart able to have faith, God will make your body able to do His works. He bring, he, he's the one that enables it. It's not us that somehow work to then verify that we're saved. It's certainly hard at times. There's certainly things that we got to do. There's certainly times that we have to fight temptation. But we're able to do that simply because His Holy Spirit dwells in us and enables us to do these things. So when we're looking at this kind of stuff, we, we look at and, and see that faith is completed. We see that God is completing His work in us when what we believed in, what we said we have faith in, we're now enabled to do. We're now enabled to act out. And that's not always an easy thing to, to grasp, it's not always an easy thing to do. But that's where we go back to grace. We're able to do this simply because God gives us a good gift to be able to do it. Salvation isn't just about the moment that we're saved. That, I mean, the moment that we believe in Christ, we are saved. The Bible talks about salvation a lot of ways as an ongoing process. God forgives us, and, and the moment that we believe, we're His. And for the rest of our lives, how He freed us from the effects of sin when we believe, for the rest of our lives, He's going to be working that out of us, Training us in, in, in godliness, training us in righteousness, making us look more like Jesus Christ every single day. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Working towards glorification, what we will look like on the last day when we stand before God and we will be declared righteous because what Christ has done for us. So we see that the justification um, is, is, is completed. Faith is, works are completing this faith in a sense that, that they always go hand in hand. And so that we see that the process is being completed when both are there. Uh, Let's keep going and probably in verse 24 we find maybe, maybe the most single difficult verse in this passage where James says, You see that a person is justified by works and not simply by faith alone. And this almost seems to be the exact opposite of what James says. When he says, "Don't you know that you're saved by grace through faith, not by works, so that nobody can boast, so that nobody can brag about it? You're saved by the gift of God, right?" That's what that's what we're talking in Romans. That's what we're talking about in the Bible. So how does James very blatantly say, "You see that a person is justified by works, and not by faith alone"? And again, I think this gets gets back to where we got to look at the details. See who James is writing to. See the words that James is using, and, and words like "justify" um, are a little bit difficult to nail down sometimes for us. There's a lot of words that I think a lot of us have heard thrown around in church for a long time. And generally, when they're used, we I mean, know our head. Yeah, we know, we know what's being said. But if somebody asked us to define the word on our own, we may have a little bit more difficult time doing that. To be justified, essentially, just means to be declared right. Right? So if you're, if you're justified in saying something, you, what you're saying has, has proof behind it. Right? So if, if somebody says, you know, somebody walks up to you on the street and says, you know, I'm the greatest baseball player that ever lived. You're like, that's a bold claim. How do you justify that? It's long, Hit more home runs than anybody in history. I've got more hits, more RBIs. I've won six gold gloves. You know, all these different things. If they lay it out, on like that, Then you say, okay, you're justified in saying that. You, you have proven yourself right. In the Bible, many times when we see justified, it's the fact that we're pro- we're proven right before God. And the only way that we know that we can be proven right before God is one day we will stand before God in judgment. And God say, Why do, why do you deserve to escape the wrath that you brought for yourself? And all that we can say is, Father, it's nothing that I've done. Jesus has taken my place and already paid this punishment for you. When we see justified in the Bible, we see that it's not us that justifies ourselves. It's not us that declares ourselves right. But we're declared right simply by what Christ has done on our behalf. So, the, these are slightly different ways that justification is used differently. It's the same word, the same meaning, but we see there's different connotations used in different ways. So, um, here, I think we can see justification more as, as vindication. We see that somebody is vindicated. We see that somebody is proved right in their faith by their actions. So, imagine, imagine you meet somebody that says, you know, they're, they're a trainer at, sea, at sea World. They train dolphins at SeaWorld. Um, to me, there's only two ways that you can be justified in saying that you train dolphins at SeaWorld. One is that you have to have trained dolphins at SeaWorld. You, there's, there's a, you know, there may be a lot of trainers at SeaWorld. There may be ones that put on big shows. There may be ones who stay in the back. There may be really good trainers. There may be really bad trainers. But all of them can say they're a trainer at SeaWorld as long as they have trained one dolphin at SeaWorld. Understand? That's the minimum requirement To be definitionally a trainer at SeaWorld, you have to have trained an animal at SeaWorld. But before you do that, to be justified in saying that you're a trainer at SeaWorld, you have to have been hired by SeaWorld. If you're watching a show there and everything's going great and a lunatic jumps out from the crowd and goes in the tank and starts playing with the dolphins, that's not a trainer. That's a crazy man, right? That's somebody that's going through the same actions. He may be trying to do the same things the trainers are doing, but he's not doing it to the same effect. To be a trainer at SeaWorld, you have to be hired, you have to be trained, you have to be doing it for their vision, for their mission, what they're trying to accomplish all of these things have to be brought into it. And the Christian life is the same way. Just as it is logically impossible for you to be a trainer at SeaWorld if you've never been to SeaWorld, it is logically impossible for you to call yourself a Christian without ever having participated in the Christian life, in the Christian life. And the things that the Bible tells us a Christian life will look like. It can't be done. It's impossible. It doesn't make any sense. But just like being a trainer at SeaWorld, you cannot actually participate in that Christian life unless you've been enabled to do so by something bigger than yourself. Unless you've been enabled, unless you've been trained, unless you've been hired on, brought into the family, brought into the kingdom of God. Unless you've been trained up in His righteousness and you're doing it for His mission, for His goal, for His glory and His kingdom. Yeah, definitely it's impossible to say that you're a Christian without living a Christian life. But you don't become a Christian by just simply doing the right things. You become a Christian because God has given His great grace to you and you've accepted it and He's building you up. He's in that and it's for his kingdom and his name's name. Do we understand how those two things work together? James can very, very rightly say that you cannot justify calling yourself a Christian if you are not doing the things that Scripture says a Christian does. That is not in conflict with the Bible in any way. But James, don't make some mistake that James saying that to become a Christian, here's the seven things that you must do. Here's the five things that you must do. That's not what he's saying. You're justified in calling yourself and backing up and proving that you're a Christian. By your words, your works are not what makes you a Christian. There's more to it than that. Do we see how those things work together so that we can see how what James is saying isn't incorrect? James goes on to give another illustration to back this up. He talks about Rahab. Rahab and Joshua, too, was uh, the prostitute that hid the Israelite spies. Joshua sent spies into the city of Jericho before the great story of the walls coming down. He sent spies into the city of Jericho to, to spy it out. Rahab believed that these people were from God. They believed that God would do what he said he would do, and because she believed, she hid them, she protected them, she sent her own countrymen a different way to look after them. This is another example of, if Rick had just said she believed, but then didn't protect them, we wouldn't think her faith was legitimate. We know her faith is legitimate because she said she believed, and then she acted in a bunch of different ways that accord with, with what that believing would look like, right? If she really believed, it's going to change her actions, but she did. And, and he, uh, James ties it all off at the end of this chapter in verse 26 with, which is just going to hammer home a bolt and talking about how these two things have to be together. He says, Just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. James says, You can't have a living person without a body and without a spirit, right? If you only got one of those, you've either got a corpse or a ghost. You don't got a living person. In the same way, If you don't have faith and works acting together, you don't have a living Christian life. You don't have real faith. It's just one or the other, but it's not a true living life. They have to be together. Again, when James says this, if we just look at the context over and over and over, James isn't telling us that it's all about works. He's telling us, he's, he's hammering home that the two have to go together if it's going to be considered a legitimate Christian walk. If it's going to be considered a legitimate life turned around by God, enabled by the Holy Spirit to live for Christ. The two have to, have to, have to go together. So again, James, Paul, or anywhere else in the Bible are all coming at different angles to tell us the same truth. They were saved simply by, by the grace that God showed us. That we deserve judgment. But God loved us so much that He sent His Son to take His judgment on Himself. He lived a perfect life and He's given us what what, what He earned. That's the only way that we can be saved. By God's grace, we can attain this simply through faith. And believing in Him, but that real faith will always then produce works. Everywhere in Scripture confirms this. It may come up from different angles, it may be talking to different audiences, but the good thing is that we see that even though different Christians over time have it here in different ways, they have struggled with this and have messed it up slightly in one place or another, the Bible combats it from all areas to herd us back to the simple, simple truth that we're saved by grace through faith that produces works every time. So, how do we take this passage and apply it to our lives? How do we make all these, these, these difficult things meaningful to what we're walking through as a Christian life? I think the first thing that we've got to realize is that um, ignoring grace in the Christian walk is dangerous. And, and sustainably it's impossible. That we cannot truly call ourselves a Christian if our entire time as a Christian has never been defined by remembering, realizing that we don't deserve this, but God loved us enough to offer it to us any way that this Son Jesus we cannot be a Christian life. The the temptation is that once we become a Christian, we say, "All right, God saved me to this point, now it's on me. that's not the case. Every single day that we're able to do what God wants us to do is because His Holy Spirit enables us, that's grace. Every single day that we know that we're not going to be judged for the things that we do ultimately before God, that's grace. Every single day that we realize that God is working on us to make us closer to looking like Jesus from now until the day that we're taking off the surf, that's grace. We have to remember that grace is active in our Christian life and it's never there have reason to question our faith. Secondly, ignoring works in the Christian life is dangerous and sustainably it's impossible. I think a lot of us can can kind of choose the side either either be like the church that Paul's writing to, the things that we have to earn, or or choose the side like like James is talking to, the church that James is talking to, the things God's taken care of it for me, now I can rest. This is my spiritual retirement. We can can sit back and think that alright, it's It's the the work of it all is done. Now, there's nothing left for me to do. And that's not the case. I think that that there's times in the Christian life where we certainly fail to do what God has asked us to do. We we fall short of of coming close to the commandments, the the descriptions of what the Christian life will look like. There's certainly those times. But when we find ourselves in those times, when we're honest with ourselves and say, I'm not doing X like God has told me to. I'm not doing this like God has laid out in the scriptures that's when we don't say, well, that's okay. No, no, we're honest with ourselves. We're even hard on ourselves at points and say, no, God has enabled me to live this life. He's put me in the Spirit so that I have the ability to do so, and now I'm going to lean in and make sure that I'm obedient to the God that saved me from myself. And if we don't do that ever, we don't want we have a real reason to question if we're really in the faith at all. So lastly, how do we find the balance between these two? How How do we find the middle ground between focusing too little on words and too little on faith. middle ground is simply found by simply looking to Jesus. Simply looking to your Savior. He's the one that bought your salvation for you. He's the one that died in your place. He's the one that lived a perfect life so that, so that, that, that no judgment can be earned. I will says by simply believing in Him and simply trusting in Him. We have eternal life to put our faith in Him. The Bible also tells us that. Jesus says that those who love Him are going to do what He's asked. So John 6, 37 says that anyone that comes to Jesus, He'll accept. He says, everyone the Father gives to me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. Those who come in faith are never going to be rejected by Christ. But Jesus also says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So when Jesus teaches these things, we don't see any conflict. We see them as working together. He loves those who come to Him and those who come to them will follow Him. The sheep know His voice and the sheep will follow after Him. Faith, grace, and works aren't combating each other in the process of salvation. They're not different aspects. that are are applied. that maybe you have one, maybe you have the other. It's a process. Never peace has to be. Grace saves us. Faith is how we attain and works for what proves it. And God is what it all of it. Let's pray. Hey. Father God, thank you so much um, for your holy word. Lord, there's there's so many ways that we can take what you've perfectly given to us and either confuse it or, or have a difficult time understanding it or, or err, mess up in and, and one way or the other. But Father, you've given us enough to be able to draw us back to the central truths so, Father, wherever we're at in our Christian walk today, wherever we're at, Christians who have been saved for a long time and either need to remember more of your grace or need to, to put into practice more of the things that you've been able to do. Or maybe those who don't know you at all, Father, we pray that this idea of truly truly being truly having faith is something that will change us. Yes, it changes everything. Father, thank you so much for what you've given us. Thank you so much for your son. We pray that we can live up the life that you've been us to do. Thank you for joining us online. Leewood Baptist Church exists to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. For more information about us and our ministry, please visit us at www.leywoodbaptist.com.